Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is science writer and skeptic, Dr. Michael Shermer. Michael, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm honored to have you on the show. I've been reading your books and your articles at Scientific American for a long time. I'm delighted to have you on the show, and I think the listeners will be delighted too. One of our other writers, Andrew Orr, is a big fan of yours, and I'm sure there's many others out there as well. But for those who may be not familiar with you, let me give you a brief introduction to the readers. You're the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, a former monthly columnist for Scientific American, a presidential fellow at Chapman University, where you teach Skepticism 101. You are a noted science writer and author of New York Times bestsellers, Why People Believe Weird Things, one of my favorites, and The Believing Brain, Why Darwin Matters, The Science of Good and Evil, and The Moral Arc. And your newest book is Heavens on Earth, The Scientific Search for Afterlife, Immortality, and Utopia. Wow. I wanted to ask you about your career arc and sort of introduce you to the listeners. Um, so in, I read uh, that in high school you became uh, a Christian and embraced Christian Christianity and theology and were reading C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was not raised religious. My parents were not not religious, nor were they anti-religious. They just weren't anything. In my case, it was as as so many cases with uh, teenagers, the influence of my peers. And this was the early seventies, and the and the Jesus movement, born again movement. It's kind of the evangelical movement was just starting to take off. And the point of it was not to join a religion or belong to a faith. It was just to have a direct link to God and Jesus and all that. So it was kind of a generic Christianity that I was introduced to. And uh, this, so this was high school, but I took it seriously and, and uh, started reading not, not just the Bible, but books about the Bible and then decided, well, if I'm going to do this, I really wanted to be a college professor. It seemed like a great gig. So I thought, well, what would I do would be theology, you know, professor of theology, something like that. And so I went to Pepperdine University, which is Church of Christ School, and to get an undergraduate degree in that. But it, it soon became apparent that to get a Ph.D. in theology so I could be a professor, I'd need to master Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and Latin. And I could barely Really? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> at the time, that that's right. And I could barely get wow. through Spanish. So I thought, oh, boy, I'm never going to make this. So I switched over to, to psychology. And uh, there I discovered the experimental method and, and, and statistics and research methods and science in general and testing hypotheses. And, and it became apparent that there was a distinct difference between that way of finding out what's true versus the theological way of finding out what's true or sort of philosophical way. Um, and to me, I it just, it, it was a better cognitive fit in temper by my temperament of how I like to view the world uh, through the lens of science. So I just ended up staying there. And when I went to graduate school, in experimental psych, um, no one was religious. It wasn't. It was just a state university, and and whether they were religious or not, I don't know. Maybe they were, but my you know my fellow students, professors, it just wasn't important. So this was late seventies. And uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky appeared on the scene yet? No, no, no. Cognitive psych was still. Uh, just kind of getting started. Uh, uh, Tversky and Kahneman were not till, uh, well, they were just publishing in the late 80s. So this was long before that. Anyway, um, the, um, uh, but but the, the kind of the sociology of religious change was apparent that when you're not in the bubble, surrounded by 
people that believe the same thing as you, uh, it's easy to be a little more open-minded about other beliefs. So, you know, I'm in my early 20s, so I didn't have a big uh, commitment family-wise or, you know, so forth, so or career-wise. So uh, it was easy to just kind of try out different ideas, and I did. I took courses in anthropology, for example, and discovered that, you know, there's tons of, uh, and comparative mythology, and that there's tons of other beliefs and religions that uh, are contradictory with one another and with what I believed, and it was obvious they these people believed as strongly as I did. So I got to thinking, you know, what are the chances that I got it right and all these other people are <laughs> now, now, of course, my first impulse is it's amazing I'm the one who got it right and all these other people are wrong. But a little epistemological humility, as it's now called, uh, you know, shows that, that that doesn't really take you very far uh, in science. you gotta, you got to be humble before the great mysteries of the world. And, and th th those are still great mysteries that, you know, the fact that, you know, we can't answer all the big ultimate questions leaves it wide open for lots of different interpretations, perhaps no one of which is right. And so that led me to uh, eventually to atheism. So were you a fan of Carl Sagan growing up? Oh, yeah. Oh, huge fan of Carl and, and Stephen Jay Gould. Those were my two intellectual mentors, as it were. Uh, extraordinary I got, claims require extraordinary evidence. Sagan yeah. said that, but I don't think he was the originator of it. He was not. No, the originator of that quote is a guy named Marcello Truzzi, one of the co-founders of, of uh, the magazine Skeptical Inquirer. It went by a different name originally. The Zetetic is what it originally was named. And Marcello had a quote similar to that. It was a little clunkier. And Carl kind of rephrased it in Cosmos. And so, A, it was more effectively said by Carl, but also there's a an effect where quotes migrate up to the most famous person who ever said them, and that's who gets the credit. This is, <laughs> this is true, you know, Yogi Berra or um, uh, Groucho Marx or, you know, any, any of these you know, kind of famous people that are highly quotable. When you really look into uh, sources for quotes, uh, more often than not, they're not the originators of them, or they never even said them. As Yogi Berra said, I never said half the things I said. <laughs> <laughs> so you adjusted your PhD program a little bit away from psychology. Yeah. So what happened was in, uh, I got my master's in experimental psych uh, and I, I did not go on for a PhD for a couple of reasons. One, um, the state of California just passed Prop 13 and cut property taxes from 4% to 1%, and they put a freeze on all educational hiring because most of that money was going to the educational system in California. So I thought, okay, I'm, I may not get a, a, be a professor somewhere. I better find something else to do. So I went to look for a job as a writer because it's the only thing I had skills in, and I ended up at a bicycle magazine as an editor. And then, and then oh, I got I see where this is going. <laughs> yeah, so I got into bike racing, and so in the 80s, I spent most of the 80s as a bike racer and in the business of cycling, and, and I was teaching at night at a community college, uh, which you can do with a master's degree, and so I, I was teaching uh, uh, intro psych and and other related courses there, so I kept my hand in it, and then and then in the late 80s, I realized, well, I can't do this forever. I mean, my body's, body's only going to hold out for so long. Stein's Law and, again. Stein's Law is going to run out. So, and then I saw, uh, Carl gave a great talk at uh, Pasadena civic auditorium on the burden of skepticism. And uh, so I dedicated why people believe were things to him. And I had that quote in there. I don't have it in front of me, but basically he said, um, 
he talked about the importance of, of science and reason and skepticism. And, you know, he is so inspirational. It's just, yes. he's almost spiritual in his uh, delivery. And, and, and I remember sitting there thinking, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get out of the cycling the business. moment. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I, but I only have a master's degree, so I got to go back and get a PhD so I could be a professor. And so I did that and I switched to the history of science cause I, I, I was interested in, in a, a broad variety of, of fields. So that would enable me to bounce around. Uh, and also I, you know, I, I, I love the history of science and anyway, so then, um, I was a professor at Occidental College in Los Angeles in the early nineties. And we started the skeptic magazine in my garage is really just a hobby, you know, lecture series at Caltech, the magazine media stuff, but that just grew and it grew and it grew. And in 1997, my first book came out. Why do people you, believe we're- went back up a second. What do you attribute the success of the, of the skeptic magazine to? Uh, well, a couple things. I think there's a market uh, need for a niche magazine like that, uh, and and we're not the first. As I mentioned, Skeptical Inquirer they they started in the mid 70s, 76, I think, uh, when Uri Geller was at the height of his fame. Oh, the old bending spoon skit. Yeah, <laughs> spoon. Yeah, no, I mean, he was like on the cover of Time and Newsweek, and you know he was being paraded around as this um, genuine psychic who uh, was tested by scientists in America, and they declared that he was legitimate and so on. And the amazing Randy and, and some others uh, realized that, no, he's just doing magic tricks. So yeah. Randy started going on The Tonight Show and, and other television shows showing that. how the tricks were done. Yeah. 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 He, he and Johnny was a magician. So Johnny knew, okay, we got to do something about this guy. So he had, that's why he had Randy on so many times. Is that fellow and, still with us, Randy? Yeah, Randy's still alive. Yeah, he's uh, late 80s now, but he's still chugging along. Well, maybe I can and, get him uh, on the show. That would be great. Yeah, you should do that. Yeah, yeah, you should do that. Anyway, so, um, and I saw that and thought, and I remember thinking at the time, you know, this guy must be, he must be the real thing because, you know, scientists uh, said it, 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 he's real. And, and what do I know? I'm just in yeah, graduate but who, school. But who? Which scientists? Which scientists? <laughs> Anybody exactly <we> right. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, and this is Randy's point. You, you got to have... Uh, when you're testing paranormal claims and, and extraordinary claims, you got to have people that are that are fraud detectors that know that because scientists are trained to to tease out the, the mysteries of nature. But nature doesn't intentionally deceive scientists, whereas people do. They will lie and cheat and, and do whatever they can to convince you. So in any case, so. Um, there, there was an interest in the media and general public for uh, explanations for this. So when we started the magazine Skeptic in 92, uh, it grew pretty f- pretty fast because it was evident that there there was a real demand for it. And um, in 97, my first book, Why People Believe Where Things Came Out, it did very well. I, I got use book- that in a class I teach. It's awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I do too. So, um, and so I, I did a, another book and I got a, a big, big book contract. So that gave me a little bit of financial security. And, um, and, and right around that time, Occidental College had something of a financial meltdown and, and they weren't hiring. And, you know, I was an, I was an adjunct, full-time adjunct, but not tenure tracks. So I thought, okay, you know what? I don't know if this is ever going to pan out. So I better just do this on my own. I just be an entrepreneur of ideas, a magazine publisher, essentially. And that's what I've been doing ever since i'm i'm back in the classroom at chapman but that's just one class one day a week skepticism 101 mainly i'm a public intellectual writing books doing talks 
now podcasts <laughs> and uh, you know and, and that sort of thing and and, the, and to, to answer your question is because people want to know you know how, what's the explanation for fire walking or or so, how do psychics talk to the dead or it's you know, funny what, we start off with being sort of gullible and believing things that we shouldn't believe. And then when we find out that we've been hoodwinked and that we're hungry to find out what's really going on, and we pat ourselves on the back for being curious and finding out the truth. <laughs> yes. Well, my experience in the media is that uh, media controllers don't think people want to know. So, for example, when I've pitched skeptic television shows, I always get no because they go, well, people don't want to know what the explanation for ghosts are or psychics or whatever they want. They love the mystery. It's like, no, they, uh, I love the mystery, too. There's plenty of mysteries in science. People want to know what the explanation is. What do we really know? So now I think that brings up a good that. question. Is, is the fascination with the mystery of the unknown and ghosts and parapsychics that emotion, the same emotion that you get when you go out and look at the nighttime sky and wonder how stars shine? Yeah, I think they're related. I think they're related. We're titillated by the the unknown and and, and mysteries, and I am as well. You know, so, so I get. So that. it's really kind of a discipline about figuring out what kind of romanticism to guide yourself towards. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So you mentioned Carl Sagan. Well, you know, he was the master at at um, conveying a narrative story about science that captured that kind of religious, spiritual awe and wonder. Uh, before the great mysteries uh, without going through the paranormal supernatural uh, avenue toward that. And, uh, and I think it's, it's very doable and uh, I'm still frustrated with the media. You know, I, I mean, I just, I almost never do any mainstream media anymore. You know, these, I can't watch these shows, you know, they have panel shows of four, six people all screaming at each other. I could talk to you for half an hour. I can go on Joe Rogan for three hours and talk about whatever I want. And millions of people listen and watch. And, and, and this to me is yet again, another example that people really want to know. They're not stupid. Television producers, they think people are stupid and short attention span. That's not true. Joe Rogan has the number one podcast, and he goes for three hours. People listen for three hours. They're not stupid. You know, they're really not. They really want to know. And I, don't, I think we've, you know, underserved the public. Uh, Is there some concern on people's part? I'm just speculating here. Is there some concern that when they take the path towards finding out what's really true, that they will be browbeaten by people who are a lot smarter than they are, that they won't be able to understand the facts that explain the situation. They feel a little bit intimidated. So they'd rather Maybe. bask in the glory of the fantasy. Just yeah. wondering. That's some of it. Also, um, it, it, there's an appeal about um, things like ghosts or psychics or whatever, that that there's this other realm that exists. And and if this little thing over here exists, then maybe the big thing, heaven, the afterlife, God, uh, also exists. There's a famous quote I like to use from uh, one of the early witch trials where there was a skeptic in the trial, you know, doubtful that there is such a thing as witches. And, and the prosecutor was like, well, you know, if there's no witches, then there's no demons. And if there's no demons, maybe there's no God. So this is why we got to believe in witches. <laughs> uh, you know, and so, and, and that's kind of correct. You know, the more further down the path of science we go, science is in the business of kind of toppling uh, those mysteries or explaining them in natural by natural means, or they just disappear. 
And so I'm fond of saying there's no such thing as the paranormal or the supernatural. There's just the normal, the natural, and stuff we haven't explained yet. Yeah, I understand. Right, right. I saw you were going with that. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we're going to have to take a short break before we continue. I want to continue with this fabulous discussion in the second half of the show. But first, we need to take a short commercial break. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I am chatting with Michael Shermer. We'll be right back. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. Thank you. I'm chatting with science writer and professional skeptic, Dr. Michael Shermer. So I'm fascinated by this discussion about people's emotions and, and, and the distortion of our good instincts to be more, to be more skeptical. Is it, is it wise to be skeptical about climate change? <laughs> well, okay. In general, it's wise to be skeptical about all claims until the evidence convinces you otherwise to not be skeptical. So, uh, I mean, there's plenty of things I'm not skeptical of. The Big Bang Theory of the origins of the universe, the evolution of life, the germ theory of disease, plate tectonics, and, and the geological theories of how the continents came to be where they are. Darwinian uh, evolution. Yeah, Darwinian evolution, uh, and so on. And and climate change, I am now convinced, climate change is real, global warming is real, human-caused. Uh, you know, I think there's still some uncertainties about you know, how catastrophic it's going to be based on how much warmer it's going to be, uh, based on what time horizon you're carrying out the model predictions of, you know, 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, uh, whether it's one degree, four degrees, six degrees, you know, all these things are uh, the further out on the time horizon you go, the, the greater the uncertainties and the harder to make predictions. So, so where do we find uh, that information? You just mentioned that the media is reluctant to expose people to high-level scientific work and skepticism in a well, populist we have, kind of way. So where, where do people a, go to find that those facts? Yeah. Well, of course, mainstream scientific organizations uh, like the National Science Foundation, uh, the um, – well, I should give a plug for skeptic.com. If you go to skeptic.com and you just type in global warming, we have a couple of really great articles. Just, you know, how we know global warming is real and human caused. Here are the 12 skeptical arguments against it and the rebuttal to those arguments and why we're confident. And, the, okay, so let me back up for a second. Part of the problem begins with, with Al Gore's film, Inconvenient Truth, which I thought was brilliantly done. And I met Al at a TED Talk, TED conference, and, you know, he's a great guy and so on. He, he, he's trying to do the right thing. Okay, the problem is, is that that then tethered that science to the democratic, liberal, political position, mm. politicized a science. So now people are divided on, 
on uh, on global warming based on politics. It has nothing to do with politics. You know, whether there's you know however many parts per million of CO2 gases there are in the atmosphere is not a Republican or a Democratic issue. I mean, right. the, either the Earth is getting warmer or it's not. Either it's human-caused or it's not. And in principle, politics has nothing to do with that. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, we've, it's, we're down that path now, and so it's, it's highly loaded. So uh, I used to be a climate skeptic I did, just because when I was really? in college – oh, yeah, because when I was in college – in the 70s, uh, all the doomsayers were were gathering steam. You know, Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb had already been published, and there was, you know, follow-up uh, uh, books to that. And then the ecological movement started, and, you know, I was hearing predictions in the 80s about, you know, the, the end of the rainforest and, and you know, peak oil, we're going to run out of oil, and, and all this stuff, none of which happened. So by the 90s, when I'm, you know, steeped in getting skeptic going, you know, I thought, you know, this global warming thing, this might be not a hoax, but I mean, just something that we've we've made a big mistake on. But then by the time I met Gore in 2006 at the TED conference in Monterey, by then there was enough evidence uh, in the primary literature that I had been starting to read that made me change my mind. I thought, you know what, I th after seeing his talk, I thought, you know, I'm going to go back and kind of look at the big picture. I thought, you know what, I think he's right. Uh, by then, there, there was enough evidence uh, cumulatively to overcome my skepticism. And uh, I think that's kind of the way to think about it, that start off skeptical, that's good. And But if there's enough evidence to overturn your skepticism, then it's okay to provisionally accept a claim as true until more evidence comes through. One of the podcasts we had called the TMO Daily Observations podcast a couple of days ago, I was on with one of our writers, Andrew Orr, and host Kelly Gumont, who you heard in, in just a second ago. And we were talking about how to evaluate the sources of information, sort of setting up hierarchies of who you believe, sources, people, authors, people who have credibility, people who have experience. I, I think in, in my amateur view about it, people have a hard time deciding who's the authority on these things. And when they are confronted with authority, unfortunately, they're not familiar with the person's work too much. So if there's a distinguished climatologist at, at NOAA in Boulder who gets up and gives a talk, you go, well, I've never heard of this guy. Why should I believe him? So yeah. it's a question of calibrating your sources, isn't it? That's right. And and we have this idea of the consensus, you know, the climate consensus, or there's, you know, a scientific consensus or this kind of thing. Okay, what does that mean? This is not a democracy. It's not like we're all going to vote to decide whether global warming is real or not. Uh, no, what, what it means is that as a competitive enterprise, um, these scientists that work in this field professionally, there's thousands of them, and they publish in different journals, they attend different conferences, they compete for different grants and so on. And they've by the time we read about their research, they've already been checking each other, skeptical of each other, challenging each other. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, you know, so it, so there's kind of a self-correcting machinery built into science that we don't see outside of the science. But if you go to their conferences, uh, you, you see scientists yelling at each other and they don't get along and they disagree with each other and they challenge each other's data sets and so forth. And, and so when, when you see something like 97% of climate scientists accept climate change is real. That that's not correctly said. What it is, this was a study done on 
uh, over 10,000 scientific papers related to climate change, 97% of which of the papers concluded that global warming is real and human cause. So that's the 97%. Now, what about the 3%? What if they're wow. right? I mean, I mean, Galileo was right and the, in the massive 97% church was wrong. Uh, yeah, that's true. That does happen in history, uh, in the history of well, science. I had Dr. But, Catherine Hayhoe on the show a while back, about two months. Uh-huh. And Catherine said that they she got together with a group of people to take a look at the papers that came to the opposite conclusion. And yeah. in most cases, the papers they examined had some sort of systematic or technical mistake. That That's right. Those 3%... Uh, were either an error or they don't point to any, there's no consilience. They don't converge to any one conclusion. Like if the, like if all 3% of those papers, so this would be hundreds of papers, all pointed to the sun as the cause of cl- climate change, not human activity, for example, uh, that would be something worth looking into further because maybe they're right. But that they don't converge to anything. They all had different theories about what's going on. And so this, this idea of the convergence of evidence, the consilience of induction, as it's called in the philosophy of science, convergence of evidence from different fields. So here I'm talking about like you might have like people that study glaciers. Somebody else studies uh, flowers at a certain latitude. Somebody else studies marine life and somebody studies corals and somebody else studies fish and somebody studies mammals, whatever. And they all report seeing the same kinds of changes that would indicate climate is warming. Uh, you know, seasonal changes and so on, ice core data, people, you know, so it, they don't even know each other. They don't, like, much less meet on the weekends to get our story straight because those, you know, those those conservatives, whatever. No, that that's not the case at all. So this is why um, I'm pretty confident that climate change is real and human cause because, A, it's a competitive um, uh, system, and B, they don't even know each other. These are independent scientists working in different fields, different labs, Publishing in different journals, attending different conferences. Results. That's right. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we're going to have to leave this subject. We're just starting to run out of time a little bit. There's two things I wanted to ask you about before we leave. Uh, the one is the kinds of logical, systematic logical errors that people make in falling for um, beliefs that they that are unwarranted. Some of the types of mental errors that people make. Can you give us a little bit of background on the kinds of things that people fall victim to when they seize upon certain kinds of conclusions? Yeah, the biggest ones uh, is the general category is called motivated reasoning. So things like the confirmation bias, the hindsight bias, the self-serving bias, and so on. These these biases that we talk about, and there's dozens of them now, uh, they all um, are instantiations of this larger motivated reasoning. I'm motivated to show what? That I'm true, that I'm correct, that I'm right, that my beliefs are true. Well, where do those beliefs come from in the first place? Usually not through some kind of systematic logical analysis of the data. Uh, Usually they come from just emotional sources or psychological, social, anthropological, whatever you want to call it. Peer pressure. Peer pressure, you know, how I was raised, uh, you know, what part of the country I'm born in, what my political affiliation, and my preferences for economic ideologies and religious beliefs, all of that. Uh, and so then you go out into the world and, and, and collect data to support what you already believe to be true. Uh, that's, the, for example, a confirmation bias. So the hard part is to overcome that. How do you do that? Well, you do that by reading other people's stuff that doesn't agree with you. 
So, you know, if, if you're conservative, you should read the New York Times op-ed section and vice versa. If you're a liberal, you should read the Wall Street Journal op-ed sections. And, you know, it, it's hard to do. I have to say, you know, when I force myself to read somebody I know I don't agree with, you know, I, I don't like doing it. It's like, oh, I don't want to read this because I'm pretty sure it's going to challenge what I believe. And I but I force myself because in part it's my job. But uh, but but just because I know I'm biased, I know I watch certain shows, read certain newspapers to reinforce what I already believe, and everybody does that. And so this is this is why free speech is so important. And that I'm worried it's under assault now. You know, it's the only way to find out if you're wrong is by listening to somebody you don't agree with. And uh, so I'm worried about the academy deplatforming speakers on college campuses because they don't toe the correct far left liberal uh, perspective, whether it's right or wrong, whatever the speech is about, that's irrelevant. What we want is a diversity of opinions on campus. There's a fellow on Channel 9 News in Denver who does that. He has a show called Next. Kyle Clark has been on background mode, and Kyle Clark promotes that interesting and, and unusual news segment. He has a half an hour to himself at night to talk uh, and engage in conversation, and he tells the listeners and the viewers you know, you don't have to change your mind. You just have to be exposed, as you said, to other viewpoints and we'll have a conversation and learn about what each other thinks. It's very important, as you said. Yeah, I mean, there's several really good reasons. First articulated by John Stuart Mill in 1859 in his great work on liberty. It's very short. You can find it online to read for free. Uh, basically, one, you might be wrong, and this is going to correct your wrong beliefs. Two, you might be partially right and partially wrong, and you can fine-tune your beliefs. Three, you might be completely right, but hearing the opposition strengthens your position. He who knows only his own side doesn't even know that. Mill said. Um, and yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's the, really, again, it's the only way to know what the heck is going on here because you can't live in a bubble. If you're in the bubble, you're only talking to yourself, you're going to go down the, you're going to go down off the rails and you won't even know it. Good advice for the listeners. Okay. So, in the last few minutes of the show, I want to ask you about your new, latest book. I'm fascinated by it. Um, the title is Heavens on Earth, The Scientific Search for the Afterlife, Immortality, and Utopia. Tell us about the book, but I'm more interested in what motivated you to write the book, because normally a discussion of afterlife uh, is not a scientific subject. <laughs> Ease us into this and explain what's going on here. Well, I'm 64 years old, you know, so I'm cramming for the final. <laughs> <laughs> You never know, you know, get close. You go, <laughs> In case I'm wrong now, being an atheist, I don't believe in the afterlife. Well, so really it's an extension of all my previous books written, writing about science and pseudoscience, science and religion, science and morality. So science in the afterlife was kind of the next natural step. And uh, uh, because it, it's one of those great questions, what happens after we die? Well, do science, does science have anything to say about it? It, it does. It most certainly does. So first, there's the low-hanging fruit, you know, all the different religious versions of the afterlife. So I, I demonstrate why these are e either, there's a, a, no evidence for any of them, or they're logically uh, incompatible with, with, with reason um, for a variety of reasons, like the problem of identity, who you are, what's replicated or resurrected up there in heaven. And, you know, and, and what happened to your body. And so, so I go on uh, through all that. But 
then the prime focus of the book in the center of the book is the, the scientific attempts to achieve immortality, you know, cryonics and uh, radical life extension, transhumanism, the singularity people, the mind uploaders, you know, we're going to, you're going to upload your mind in, into the cloud. And then when your physical body dies, your copy of your, your mind will still be in existence. So you get to continue and so on. That's These are the all the grail of science fiction. Move your mind to- into a robot to- like data and live for thousands of years. Totally. I mean, it's, it's fun stuff to read about. I have to say it was fun to write about, but it's, it's all nonsense. This is not going to happen. If it ever did happen, it would be, you know, centuries. Uh, hence, you, you and I aren't going to make it. <laughs> and, you know, there's this upper ceiling of about 120 years. You know, no one ever makes it past the upper ceiling. So when you hear about things like, well, people live twice as long now as they did a century ago. So we'll just double it again. No, no, no. Actually, there was plenty of people who lived in their 80s you know, a century ago, just not as many of them as they do today. Once you make it past the age of five or so, you have a pretty good chance to make it to 20. And once you make it to 20, you have a really good chance to make it to 40 and so Don't on. Don't the telomeres in your DNA dictate the maximum lifespan? Yeah, that's right. So things begin to fall apart. Um, the cells stop replicating the so-called hay flick. Yeah, the errors creep in and so on. Late, by the time you're in late 80s, you know, the decline is pretty rapid, uh, depending on your genetics. So now there are people working on this, uh, you know, Peter Thiel and and Jeff Bezos and the Google guys have all um, funded venture capital money into startup companies that are trying to, to defeat aging. OK, good for them. I'm not against this. I'm skeptical that they're going to do this anytime soon. But in the in the meantime, it's possible they'll figure out cures for like prostate cancer or Alzheimer's or senility or, or in, any of the other cancers. I mean, um, don't worry about living 500 years. I mean, they say to me, Shermer, don't you want to live to be 500? And I say, look, just get me to 100 without Alzheimer's, okay? Then we'll talk. Uh, you know, one step so at a time. Think of all the book royalties by 100. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, we might have to change the copyright laws about how many, whatever it is, after 40 years, you, you lose your copyright or something like that. But in any case, um, yeah, so I, I think what people underestimate is the problem, how complex the body is biochemically and, and cell-wise cell, cell and, and, and systems-wise that, you know, if I just take curcumin or, or vitamin C or uh, whatever the latest thing is, you know, I can defeat aging. No, no, you can't. You know, it's there's a hundred things you'd have to do at the same, at the same time. Not going to happen. And this is my worry about both scientific and religious versions of the afterlife or immortality. You're missing this life. You know, if I, I've met some of these science people. They're just so focused on living forever. They're missing today. Dude, go outside and look around. I mean, you're living. You're alive mm-hmm. right now. Don't miss out because you're so focused on the next life. Good <laughs> and advice. that's good advice. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, um, we're out of time. We're going to have to bring this to a close. What a wonderful discussion this has been. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, I enjoyed it. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, I've been an admirer of your work for a long time, and to meet you finally, after all these years, what took me so long? <laughs> well, we'll, we'll have it to do it good. again and, and cover some other topics. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, tell the listeners how they can contact you if you if they wish. Oh well, skeptic.com is our webpage for the magazine. Michaelshermer.com. You can you know how to contact the author. My email's on there. I I answer my own emails and uh, the uh, magazine. Skeptic magazine is every book in every bookstore in North America. My books are all is carried by all that, and of course at Amazon. And uh, yeah, so that's that's the best way to find me at Twitter. I'm, I'm at Michael Shermer, and uh, so that's it. Great. We'll put all that in the show notes.
Thank you. Okay. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed the discussion with uh, Dr. Shermer. This has been fantastic. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.